0: Welcome to the Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized badass disability rights activist Judy Human. This episode, Judy chats with her longtime friend Colleen Starcloff. Colleen has worked in disability rights since the 1970s. She, along with her late husband Max Starcloff, founded Paraquad Incorporated and then the Starcloft Disability Institute. Colleen has expertise in many areas that are working towards fully integrating disabled people into society and enabling them to live independent, meaningful lives. These areas of expertise include independent living, Medicaid and Medicare programs, personal assistance, universal design, transportation, employment, and education. Please enjoy this conversation between Colleen and Judy to learn all about the important work that Colleen is doing and has done. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Kylie Miller, and Judy Human. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet this episode's guest.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Human Perspective. Today, it's very difficult for me to introduce our guest, Colleen Starkloff, because we've known each other since 1974. We call each other sisters. When I had kidney cancer in 2013 and I had to go to the hospital for surgery, Colleen was kind enough to say that she would come and be with me in the hospital because we both clearly understood that with as much prep work as I did, which was extensive, you could not rely on people in the hospital to do what needed to be done. So Colleen said she would come. Theoretically, I was supposed to be in the hospital for one night, maybe two nights, but I wound up being there for nine or 10 nights. And Colleen stayed. She came on the 17th and she left like the day before Christmas. So she called herself my sister so that we wouldn't have any difficulty with the hospital. And so Colleen also was Jorge's and mine in our wedding, matron of honor and Max Starkloff, her loving husband was one of our bridesgrooms, and their daughter, Megan, was a junior bridesmaid, and their late daughter, Emily, was a flower girl, and Maxim, their youngest, was a ring bearer. So you can see outside of the work that we've done in independent living, which we'll get into discussing, that we have deep, deep connections. So Colleen, welcome to the program.
2: Judy, I'm so honored to be able to join you. We've talked about so many issues about disability rights and about family and about everything in our lives together. But to be able to talk to you today with a focus on disability is really an honor. And I appreciate you inviting me to join the Human Perspective.
1: Well, we appreciate each other. So we can get into that another time. But Colleen, you know, when I was thinking about the program, you have so many areas of expertise. You're a physical therapist, is that right? Yep. What got you into wanting to be a physical therapist?
2: Well, I'm the oldest of 12 children. Robert and Joanne Kelly had 12 of us. Uh, My little brother, Michael, didn't survive more than four hours. So there were 11 of us surviving. And being the oldest, I was used to helping in the family. And I just think I have a sort of a nurturing personality but i didn't know anything about disability rights so it's a long story about why i became a physical therapist but in my mind it gave me an opportunity to be helpful to others so that was the first reason that i decided to do it but on the first day of my job i was being given an orientation by the outgoing physical therapist and i hear this worrying sound worrying like worries squeak or squeak and This man comes riding down the hallway and passes the PT and me and his hair is all slicked back and he's in a motorized wheelchair and he's got one arm hooked behind the push handle and he goes by and he says hi Roger to the PT and Roger says hi Max and I said is that Max Starkloff and he said yeah do you know him and I said no don't know him. The short version of this story, because we don't have a lot of time, is that he tried to take my sister out when she worked at the nursing home as a nurse's aide, and she wouldn't go out with him because he was disabled. Thank God, because Mary was hot. And she'd have gotten him, and I wouldn't have. But the second day, he comes toodling up into the PT department with some phony baloney story. I later found out he came up to meet the new PT. And Judy, when I looked at him, And I looked in his eyes and I saw that smile. I was done. This is the guy. I I fell in love with him just like that. So where you might be going with this, and I'm going to anticipate it is, why did I jump the fence from physical therapy to disability rights? Because I found I had more opportunity to make a difference alongside this man I loved. And I began to see disability through a different lens. PTs, OTs, healthcare, they don't get the perspective of living with a disability from somebody with a disability. And when Max told me what he told me about all the injustices that existed in 1973, I was appalled.
1: Max was a quadriplegic. He
2: had a spinal cord injury, in 1959, and I met him in 73.
1: Yes, and he had been in the Marines. Yes. And his family was a well-respected family in St. Louis, and Max wound up in a nursing home. Right. I think that's a very important part of this story. And you happened to start working in this nursing home, fell in love, and began to share your lives together in the most integral ways. How did you connect on the importance of Max getting out of the nursing home?
2: Well, as you know, because you knew and loved Max, he was a very focused man. He didn't finish college. He had one semester of night school at St. Louis University before he had his accident. And living in that nursing home showed him that if he didn't do something to change his life, he was gonna die there. And maybe not as an old man, because there was not a lot known in healthcare about the potentials and the opportunities for people with spinal cord injuries to live meaningful, productive lives. It was just sort of a way to take care of them until they died. And he didn't want that to happen to him. But Max was also a very compassionate man. And he believed that if he could change how he lived his life, it could help other people to have a change in opportunities and lifestyle. Very quickly, I met Jenny Laurie. Very quickly, I met you, met Ed Roberts, met some of the giants in disability rights. And it affirmed for me that I had found my niche. I'd found people that I respected and could look up to and learn from and that I could participate in something way bigger than us to change how the world looks at people with disabilities and I got very excited I mean for me it was a no brainer I worked as a PT for a few years just to kind of make a transition and have a little money max didn't have anything <laughs> so until we started fundraising so I jumped the fence and I've never looked back
1: So both of you were uh, really the founders of an organization in St. Louis called Paraquad. Paraquad is a center for independent living. You and Max later on founded the Starclough Institute, but you spent many, many years with Paraquad and also really were on the core group of people creating the National Council on Independent Living. So, how did you and Max decide to get involved in setting up Paraquad?
2: Well, Max had actually incorporated it by the time I met him because he was told that if he wanted to live out in the community in housing that was accessible, which was his first idea, he would need to document through a market study that there was actually a need for housing and that disabled people would actually rent it, which seems silly today, but back in 73, when most people were either living at home with their family or having to go into nursing homes for the personal assistance they needed. That was the way it was. And so Max had incorporated and he needed a 501c3 so he could raise money to pay for the market study that a group of consultants were going to do. And it ended up that he didn't raise the whole 20,000 for the market study. The guys in the team saw how hard he was working. And when he got a fair amount, they just did the study. and overwhelmingly. All the responses that were came back to the questionnaire was, yes, you know, we need this housing and it doesn't exist, and if it's there, we want to live in it. But I'll tell you an interesting story, which you may or may not know. Max, before I met him, he'd gone out to Berkeley, where a good friend of his was, who'd, who was in the accident with him in 1959, and she was a social worker out there, and he was all excited because he was doing this market study, and he told her about it, and uh, she said, you know, Max, there's some guy out here in in the Bay Area who's trying to do accessible housing for disabled people, and maybe we should find him. His name's Ed Roberts. And so she found, I don't know how she found Ed, and Max met Ed while he was there. And he told Ed this great idea for a self-contained community with accessible housing and built-in attendance for people with disabilities. And Ed listened very patiently, and he said, well, that's not the way we do things here and he talked about integration. He talked about housing that was for everybody. He didn't talk about universal design, but he said, we need to be integrated. We've been segregated too long. And Max was, it was an aha moment. He's like, God, that makes so much sense. So the rest is history. We got locked into a HUD 202 loan which created segregated housing. And we did it because we needed a model and we couldn't get funding anywhere else. But it did get people out in the community. It did demonstrate that people would rent it, and and have much more viable lives if they were living in the community. And when it was torn down, we were thrilled to death (laughs) that this segregated ghetto was gone. But we learned something as we went along.
1: So the 202 housing uh, was being erected and started and Paraquad, the CIL model. When did it start?
2: Well, actually, when the federal funding came out, we got involved on committees. I say we because I was with Max And I was always buzzing in his ear, but Max was the leader. And he was on those, I can't remember what they're called right now, but a committee that we were working with uh, the Rehab Services Administration to create the language that would provide funding for independent living. And Max was right in there with everybody, all you guys, Ed and everybody, creating that language and getting the funding. And the first funding that came down was $2 million divided by 10. Applicants And Paraquad was one of the first 10 federally funded independent living centers. And I'm just going to fast forward and say that it was our idea, Max and me, to create a council, a national organization that centers that would get independent living funding could join so that we could build a coalition of thinking and action on building independent living options that did not include segregated environments for people with disabilities. We were right there at the beginning.
1: For those of you who are history buffs and want to learn more about some of the specifics that Colleen is discussing, in 1978, I believe, is when the Rehabilitation Act Amendments included language for Centers for Independent Living. And at that point, California already had 11 Centers for Independent Living. When Ed became the director of the Department of Rehabilitation, he used some of the federal money to set up 10 centers, in addition to the Berkeley Center, which had already been started in 1973. So, Colleen, the name of the Center for Independent Living in St. Louis is Paraquad. What did the creation of Paraquad mean, both for Max and you and St. Louis?
2: Well, it meant a great deal because we were espousing something that people not only had not thought of before, but didn't believe could happen, that people with significant disabilities could live in the community, not institutionalized, and have independent, productive lives. And from the very beginning, it was about being able to go to work, have a family, be part of your community, have personal assistance, have public transportation that's accessible, the whole nine yards that makes that happen. So Paraquad got our funding in 1979. We hired two other staff, so there were four of us that really got the independent living center off the ground. The market study had been long gone. The housing project opened in 77, and now we were on to bigger, better things. And I will say we were influenced by you and Ed and Ginny Laurie and a lot of the people we'd met in the ensuing years since we first met to create a much better model for independence. So Paraquad became advocacy, direct services, employment, the whole bit. But it, it started to change St. Louis' thinking about disabled people, and that was critical. And I
1: think what was also historically very important is the uh, creation of an organization that grew out of the 10 centers that were originally funded by the federal government and then in states around the country there were additional centers that were being set up with state money. I wanna emphasize the issue of advocacy because one of the areas that you and Max have been involved with, and Max passed away what?
2: December 27th, 2010. 2010. 2010,
1: yeah. But you've had a very strong focus on advocacy in transportation and healthcare, Medicaid, personal assistance. Maybe you could talk a little bit more, Colleen, about what has driven you over these last 30, 40 years, because you've done some very interesting work. I think we should talk briefly about Centene and uh, how this expansion of you, Colleen Starkloff, has really been quite explosive. So talk a little bit more about your a- area of interest in healthcare.
2: care. Well, I actually, have I have several areas of interest.
1: We'll get to those.
2: In the healthcare realm, in 2003, after we founded the Starkloff Disability Institute in St. Louis, we were talking with the CEO of Centene, which is a Medicaid managed care company, about making a donation to this newly founded Starkloff Disability Institute. He's a wealthy civic leader. And when we found out what his company was focused on, Medicaid, we stopped in that very meeting, stopped asking him for money and said, if you're a Medicaid managed care company, we would really encourage you to support disability led focused organizations in states where you have insurance plans and set up a committee that advises you on your policy and your practices relative to people with disabilities. So he agreed to that. He also gave us a donation, but but he agreed to that and he asked Max to start that, but Max died. So I did it. So we have some of the top disability rights leadership organizations in the country on the Centene National Disability Advisory Council and Sentine listens to us.
1: So the committee that you discussed was eventually set up in 2011. What is your vision of what needs to be happening? Let's select personal assistance services as an example.
2: A couple of years ago, I, I asked the council to stand on the issue of personal assistance. Although it was a linchpin issue when we started independent living, it still has not been well addressed by us as a nation. And in my opinion, the best source of personal assistance dollars for people with significant disabilities is in the Medicaid program. It's the only program that pays for it, but because of income caps and asset limits, when you reach a certain income, you automatically lose that. So you either have to choose between getting out of bed every day through personal assistance or, you know, working. And then many people can't afford the cost of hiring attendants. So Centene agreed to get involved in that. And we've been on that for a couple of years now. They've done some market studies. We now have some policy papers. We've looked at the 45 states who have buy-in programs all of them having a wide variety of income caps and asset limits to a few states that have no income caps and we're trying to work toward developing a coalition of disability rights led organizations that will mount this challenge and get it done and change how people like yourself and people like max have to struggle every day to to have someone to help them get out of bed and back into bed and all the things in between so this effort is moving forward, and I recently found out that CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, already has guidance in its language that allows states to make the decision, what I will call the good decision, to either eliminate or dramatically increase income limits, and I want asset limits eliminated, because you can't live a good quality personal life on an Asset limit of $2,000 or $5,000. The policy makes no sense. The program was created in 1965. It hasn't really changed. And it's 2022. And people with disabilities are living more robust lives, more capable of joining the workforce and being part of our communities, but for this issue of attendant services. And I'm not going to quit or die until this damn issue is taken care of. Sorry for my language. It needs to be resolved, and we're on a real mission to try to coalesce the disability rights community behind this.
1: I mean, there's a large movement around the United States, many different organizations working on this, and I think we're seeing some very positive changes that are coming about. California just came out with new rules, raising asset limits to $130,000, and I think Washington State and, of course, Massachusetts being one of the leaders in Maryland and New Jersey. So it really is something which is uh, catching on. And I think the next step will obviously be getting people to be made aware of these programs and getting them to feel confident. And then, of course, now being able to find personal assistance. But I think the important part about this discussion for our audience is to see how you as a person have evolved so much over the decades. Another area that you've really been uh, very engaged in is universal design. Why is universal design so important for you and how do you see it fitting into the overall picture of the work that you've been doing these many decades?
2: When Max and I met Ron Mace, who was an architect and had polio and created building codes that were really model codes for accessibility for people in this country to follow, to integrate people with disabilities into the community. We were having dinner with Ron Noah Knight, and he started talking about universal design. And I said, Ron, what are you talking about? Look how long it took us to get accessibility accepted and even properly followed by the codes. And he said, well, think about it, Colleen, when we just have accessibility, we kind of isolate ourselves to places that are accessible. Not every place is accessible. Now, of course, this was in the early 80s. We hadn't had the ADA. The world is way more accessible than it was. But still, if you're looking at home design, you're not going to find codes that will provide for a lot of accessible housing. The Fair Housing Act is usable. It's not accessible. It's usable. I'll always say that but it was a step in the right direction. So what he said was, we don't wanna be segregated. We wanna be integrated into our communities. And if we can come up with a design concept that's universal so everybody can use it, but it adapts to the needs of someone with a disability or someone who becomes disabled, we do ourself and our society a much greater service. And I thought, boy, that's brilliant. I wish I'd thought of it. (laughs) But I got on the bandwagon. And in the early 90s, I began to work on resolutions in the city and in the county of St. Louis that would require universal design in any affordable housing that was funded with public dollars. And that's been going along, not as well as I'd like, but it's been going along. So we have more universal housing or universal attempted housing. I recently gutted and rehabbed my own kitchen, which was a real nightmare. And it is now universally designed, and I'm inviting designers, builders, contractors, anybody to come see it, because the product manufacturing market has caught on to this idea that whether you call it inclusive design, universal design, convenient design, smart design, the kinds of opportunities there are for products to make it easier for all of us to live in our homes are coming on. So universal design, I think, I don't know if it'll be in my lifetime, but it is certainly coming on so that people can age in place. Little kids can use things in the kitchen. I have a flexible workspace. And when my, my my family came over and we had Easter, I could lower a countertop. So my little grandson, Blake, didn't have to stand on a chair. He could scoop up the waffle batter and pour it in the waffle iron because the countertop came down to his level. It's that kind of thing, but there's more. There's so much more that can be done with universal design. And designers are beginning to talk about it too.
1: I'd like to talk a little bit about family, because I think in the discussion that we were just having around universal design or smart design, you very much, as you started out telling us, came from a family with 12 children. Uh, Mm -hmm. One, unfortunately, passed away. You're the oldest of 11. You have two children.
2: Yeah, had three.
1: Unfortunately, Emily passed away. And you have how many grandchildren? Eight. Eight grandchildren. And they age from what to what?
2: The oldest is 19 and the youngest
1: just turned six a couple of weeks ago. So talk to us about the importance of family for you.
2: Well, I always wanted to have children and I thought 10 kids would be a great idea. And Max nearly fell over when I said that. And I said, well, how many do you want? He goes, well, I was thinking one. And I said, no, no you're not thinking right. I mean, I'm the oldest of 12. One isn't going to cut it. Besides growing up without a brothers and sisters is, is no way to grow up, in my opinion. We negotiated and we had three children Megan, Max, and Emily. And as you alluded to, we lost Emily on May 5th, 2008. Max and Megan and our grandchildren are really a great part of our legacy. People from all over the country and all over the world have called me and said, How did you get kids? We adopted our children. How did you get children? And so we've been peer support to many people who didn't think it was possible, who have gone on to build families, either through biological efforts or through adoption. And it's important because you can't work all the time, I don't think. And family brings another dimension to our humanity. And so being able to have these children and grandchildren who have enriched my life immensely is a blessing and uh, I'm grateful. So was Max. He was an amazing father and a grandfather.
1: And friend. Yeah, yeah. And leader. Yeah. Absolutely leader. Have you been doing work with universities? Yes. And what kind of work have you been doing with them?
2: Well, with universities, we've created disability studies. The Starkloff Disability Institute creates disability studies curricula to talk about independent living and disability rights and the, the changing attitudes and potential and possibilities of folks with disabilities, including public policy down to how you live your daily life. And we've also, I've taught courses on universal design in the past in university level. We give talks all the time to PT and OT students. We try to get in and talk to nursing students. We talk to social work students, people who have their foot in healthcare, where you encounter folks with disabilities. We've talked to medical students and law students, trying to get them to see disability in a a much more positive light. We've been in the newspaper. We've been every place. Not every place. I mean, we keep turning over new stones. I'm trying to get into builder trade magazines now to talk about universal design. I started doing a podcast and then COVID hit, but we're trying to expand the idea that the Medicaid work disincentives have to go. So we're working with our state Medicaid department to try to tell them what CMS has in terms of guidelines that it would enable them to change the policy without having to go through our conservative legislature. So things like that, just getting with people, being personal, that's how I work.
1: One of the major areas that the Starkloff Institute works on is employment. What would you say um, the major barriers are in the area of employment, but also really focus on what you've been doing that has been facilitating disabled people getting jobs?
2: We have focused on employment as probably our flagship issue because it's time in this country, um, we have policies that have changed over time that now have companies wanting to be diverse and inclusive. And we have to remind some companies that that's not just Latinos, Latinas, LGBTQ, it also includes disability. So we do consulting with companies and that's becoming a valuable asset to companies and also... They're paying us a consulting fee, which helps us as a nonprofit. Well, the Medicaid issue is an employment-related issue that I'm really working hard on with some folks with disabilities who are affected by losing their jobs or not being able to work up to their full potential because they'll lose their attendance. So that's that's an issue that's ongoing at the Starkloft Disability Institute and with Centene. We have created some youth programs. We have a Dream Big program which brings students with disabilities from the campuses all around St. Louis and St. Louis County. And now that we're doing Zoom meetings, we're bringing in students from further away than St. Louis, and they meet with companies. And the companies say, we'd love for you to work here. Here's what we do. Here's our mission. Here's what our jobs are. They bring in personnel to talk about their jobs and say, here's what I did when I first joined this company. But look what I've gone on to do now. So that students can understand, first of all, that a company wants them, Secondly, that people can move up and move on. And then the other thing is, here's what you have to do to work for our company. So what kind of degree, what kind of technical, what kind of background do you need to join this workforce? But we also talk to the kids about independent living, about financial responsibility, about how are you going to live on your own? What plans do you need to make for your future so you're not in a nursing home or living with your family for the rest of your life? And going on and building a family. So we try to talk about career options, but also your personal life options. How can you make it the best and most independent for you? We have another program called Access U. That's a U for university. We have staff who go into different universities to find students with disabilities on campus. What are you pursuing? What are your big dreams? Do you know about our dream big summer career camps? Join that so we can Introduce you to companies who will tell you they want you. And some of the students are changing their graduate degrees or their undergrad degrees because they're finding more opportunities that they didn't know they could do. We are just about to launch, and you're the first one to hear it, a new deaf outreach program because we don't have enough deaf people that we're reaching, students or adults. So we're going to soon be hiring a deaf outreach coordinator who will be deaf and uh, probably an interpreter also to supplement that program and bring in the deaf community because our programs have been very, very effective with students. More and more employers are coming to us for consulting and also to get involved in our dream big summer career camps. And also the AccessU program helps students navigate into internships, which is your great pathway into companies. So so the corporate community is joining with us too and, and is very excited about this. We also have an adult program. We call it the Starkloff Career Academy. And that helps people with their job-seeking skills, resumes and interviews and things, but also confidence and empowerment and believing in yourself and selling yourself as the next best employee. Don't go in there with your hat in your hand and let that employer know what your skills are and if you have to disclose, how you disclose that you have a disability and how to accommodate you. So it's a very well-rounded program and 80% of the people we train find their own jobs. We don't do job placement. We do empowerment. So those are our employment programs, and we're very proud of them because they're really, they're beating the national average,
1: (laughs) which is great. So Colleen, reflecting back over the last number of decades, what are some of the lessons that you've learned? And what are some of the um, messages that you would like to give to our audience?
2: One of my messages, and I I tell this to non-disabled people all the time, that I have friendships, and close personal relationships with some of the strongest people in the world. People with disabilities have had to put up with rotten attitudes, lack of services and programs, lack of accessibility, lack of being valued. All the things that we have managed to begin to turn around were not available. And I think that disabled people are the strongest people in the world. And you don't have to lift a finger to be strong because strength isn't measured in your physical ability. It's measured in your passion, your commitment, what you do to make the world a better place because you're here. And I absolutely am grateful that I'm part of the disability rights community in the world. And we have made changes and we have made the world a better place. It's not where we want it yet, but we have come such a long way. So my message is, first of all, dream big, always dream big. Secondly, never, never, never give up. If you believe that something you're doing is right, Or something you want to go after is right. Do not give up. Don't pass go and collect your $200. You keep going. Those are really my most basic things. I've I've been privileged to see change happen. So I believe that that a small group or a larger group can always make change. You just have to believe it's right and good for our humanity.
1: What are some of the most effective methods that you've used in helping spread this message beyond just platitudes, but in providing people with substantive knowledge they need to make the integral changes that we're discussing, whether it's in universal design or in a therapist being able to go beyond just the provision of therapy, but understanding the context in which it plays out. How have you done some of that work?
2: Well, first of all, I think I'm very big on building personal relationships with people. To me, that's better than an email. It's better than a text message. Getting face-to-face with people, talking to them about what you believe in and showing your passion for what you believe in because that's catchy. Other people begin to believe and trust in you if you if you can demonstrate that you really care about an issue. Secondly, you, you need to be able to show success in pursuing something and never giving up on it. Like the bus issue in the 70s, we were trying to get lifts on buses. St. Louis was the first city in the country to order lift equipped buses and have them on the streets. Orange County was the first that I know of to set a policy, but they weren't turning over their fleet. St. Louis was, and we dogged the politicians, the state, the city, the bus company. They, When they saw us coming, they wanted to shut the doors and run away and we never gave up. So you can make change and that makes a huge difference. So as
1: we um, are concluding today's discussion, the reason I wanted to have Colleen as a guest is because you can see how she's allowed herself to kind of move through life, taking advantage of opportunities that have been created by understanding the barriers that disabled people in this case were facing. And as a couple, she and Max and the family, you know, have been whole hog into this. I really would like to encourage people to, learn from the pathway that Colleen has continued to travel. And there are all these like branches that keep coming out of the main trunk of the tree uh, that really need to be seen as a part of this tree because all of the issues that she's discussing and that many of you are working on really need to be completely addressed in order to ensure that disabled people regardless of our disability or diversity, uh, really can envision ourselves as becoming fully integrated members of society. So I wanna thank you, Colleen, for being my sister. We've had amazing discussions over the decades, laughed together a lot, and uh, thank you so much for being my sister.
2: Judy, thank you. That's a very loving statement and and you know I love you. I want to also mention that I, didn't realize I had a disability until we had our son, Max, who has ADHD, and then I, and Max said to me, so do you, Colleen. Now I have cancer, and I'm fighting cancer. So I'm racking up the disabilities. But the hope and the encouragement and the support I've received from all of my friends in the disability community is going to get me through this cancer battle, because we're all fighters. We're all high achievers. We're all believers in our destiny and our mission. And we'll never, never, never give up. I love you, Judy. Thank you.
1: I love you, Colleen. Thank you all very much. I look forward to being with you for our next Human Perspective.
0: Now it's time for Ask Judy, a segment where Judy answers questions sent in by listeners. That was a really special episode, hearing you interview such a close friend of yours.
1: I know. Colleen is, we call each other sisters.
0: Right. It was really sweet to just hear how you guys interact and kind of funny to hear you ask questions that you very well knew the arc of her life. Uh, right. <laughs> but as you said, I know that you call Colleen your sister, but you do have other siblings <laughs> related to you by blood. And Jen Keaton on Instagram asked you, I would love to know more about your relationship with your siblings.
1: So I have two brothers. I'm the oldest of three. Uh, my brother, Joseph Carl Human. Is a year and a half younger than I am, and he lives in Illinois. He is a retired professor in film, and he and a colleague of his, Robin Murray, write books about the environment, with all kinds of themes. So, for those of you interested in environmental issues, you might want to look him up, look them both up. Uh, my other brother is Ricky Human, and Ricky Human is six years younger. Ricky is married, as Joseph is too. Joseph's married to Mary and Ricky is married to Julie, and they have a daughter. Her name is Kristen, and she and her partner just had a baby, and the baby's name is Orion, and he's really cute. (laughs) Of course, he's our great nephew, and of course, he's going to be cute, but my brother is a businessman, and he travels a lot, and they're both really great, and we're each similar and different in our own ways, and We value family in our own ways. And I talk to my brother, Joseph, like almost every day. And I talk to my brother, Ricky, a couple of times a week. And I think my brother, Joseph, and my brother, Ricky, speak frequently. Because if I tell my brother, Joseph, something frequently, (laughs) my brother, Ricky, will know about it. Right. Even before I told him.
0: A typical family dynamic.
1: Exactly.
0: (laughs) And how was it growing up with you being the oldest of these two little brothers? Did you like having brothers? Did
1: you want a sister? I mean... I don't recall ever asking for a sister, Mm. but I do know that it was great that I had friends in the neighborhood, like my friend Arlene and Mary and others and my cousins. Um, And I was closer, not that I wasn't closer with my male cousins, but I was close with some of my female cousins. I had polio when my mother was pregnant with my brother, Joey. So I had polio in August of 1949, and my brother Joey was born in September.
0: So your mom had her hands full.
1: (laughs) So my mom had her hands full, and I was in the hospital, Mm -hmm. and so I think in the beginning, my brother Joseph really got taken care of by our neighbors a lot, Mm -hmm. who were great, and then my brother, he came through later. It's interesting to have the three of us together, because, you know, you're siblings, and you revert back to your younger age, (laughs) even though you're in your 60s and 70s. And I'm very lucky to have them as my brothers.
0: Yeah, it's great to hear you talk about family, especially following up with such a close friend conversation with Colleen. And thank you very much, Jen, for the question. If you're listening and you have a question for Judy, you can send it to media at judithhuman.com or via Instagram and Twitter on Judy's accounts.
1: Thank you.
2: That history won't forget us
1: Or try to minimize our pain
0: Thanks for tuning in to The Human Perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow Judy on Twitter at judithhuman and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. If you want to find out more information about this episode's guest or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit judithhuman.com. You can also find a shortened video version of this interview on Judy's YouTube channel, dropping a week after this podcast is published. Otherwise, be sure to check back every other Wednesday for a new podcast episode. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee.